This is Manna at Valley Baptist Church. Together, we take an in-depth, expository look at God's Word. So open your Bible and join us as we do life together. And now, here's Brad Hannick. Fellow students, if you would be so kind to open your Bibles to Numbers 25. Numbers 25. Let me give you the context of where we are at this point in time. The nation of Israel is uh, nearing the end of their 40-year journey from Egypt to Canaan. They have been traveling now for the entire book of uh, Numbers, which means in the wilderness. So this is a chronicle of the wilderness journey of Israel. They're almost into the promised land. They're literally now camped on the east side of the Jordan River on something called the plains of Moab by a grove of acacia trees. And they're literally waiting for God to tell them what the next step is, when to go into the land of Canaan and how to go into the land of Canaan. And they don't know it yet, but last couple of weeks, there's been a spiritual attack planned and executed against them. King Balak of Moab has hired a false prophet named Balaam to come and curse them. Pagan cultures in that day believed that the gods could be manipulated with the right combination of sacrifices and incentives and incantations and skills. So they believed that these gods would literally bring about in real life the curses that a human being pronounced on an enemy if you did the right, if you had the right stuff. So Balaam's probably a medium who's interacting with demons and consorting with demons for that purpose. But Balaam, as you recall from the last couple of weeks, comes into contact with the living God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, the creator and Lord of all. And Yahweh blessed Israel and would not change his mind. So even though Balak had paid Balaam to come and curse Israel so we could destroy them, God took control and we found out the last couple of weeks Three times God spoke through Balaam, this deceitful, greedy, false prophet, and blessed Israel, even though Balak had paid and to curse Israel. And as a result of that, Balaam got fired, didn't get his big spiritual consulting contract, didn't get the big fee that had been promised. Balaam now knows that the God of Israel is an unchangeable, eternal Lord of glory and will never go back on his promise to bless Israel. God's promises to bless Israel through Abraham were unconditional. God promised what? He said, Abraham, I'm going to give you a, your family the land of Canaan. The land of Canaan was an unconditional land grant from God to the descendants of Israel, irrespective of Israel's performance. God promised to make them into a great nation, to bless them and to bless the entire world through this family. And we know that the Messiah came through Abraham's descendants, the Jewish people. Those were unconditional promises, not dependent at all on Israel's performance. However, there were a lot of promises that God made Israel under the law that were conditional. If Israel performed, then they would experience these blessings. God had told Israel at Mount Sinai in Exodus 19.5, Now then, if you will obey my voice and keep my commandments, then... You shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and holy nation. So there were some blessings of God that were absolutely unconditional. And there were some blessings of God that were conditional. And the experience of those blessings depended on Israel's obedience to God's covenant. 
And God had very clearly, as you know, in the Ten Commandments, given them some things to do and some things not to do, the entire law. So Balaam knows that God's, Israel's God is unchangeable. He can't change God. He's tried to get God to curse him, not going to happen. Balaam knows that Israel is very changeable, almost fickle. So Balaam concludes that the best way to harm Israel and collect his big B from Balak is to tempt Israel to sin against God. If Israel could be tempted to sin against God, to worship idols, to follow false gods, then God himself is going to have to curse his own people to keep his own word. Because he says, if you disobey me, here's the consequences. So if God's not changeable, he's not going to curse his own people, Balaam concludes, if we can get Israel to sin, then God has got to judge them if he's going to keep his own word. It's very diabolical. He wants to collect his fee, so he presents this plan to King Balak and the princes of Moab, and we know this because Revelation 2.12 says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, verse 14, I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and commit acts of immorality. So Balaam counseled Balak on how to tempt Israel to sin. And he brings the plan to the leaders of Moab and Midian. They agree to it and they set a trap for the nation of Israel, which Israel is going to fall into. Now that's the context of Chapter 25. So let's pick up the narrative at verse 1. While Israel remained at Shittim, that means Acacia Grove, by the way, while Israel remained at Shittim, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. For they invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor, and the Lord was angry against Israel. The Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of the people and execute them in broad daylight before the Lord so that the fierce anger of the Lord may be turned away from Israel. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each one of you slay his men who have joined themselves to Baal of Peor. Here's the principle. Sin violates God's holiness. And every sin will be paid for either by the death of the sinner or by the death of God's Son. Let me repeat that. Sin violates God's holiness. And every sin will be paid for, either by the death of the sinner or by the death of God's Son. Let me give you the religious context of what's going on in this region. Baal worship is the religion of this entire Near East region. Baal is a Phoenician god, and Baal's name means owner or master. He was considered to be the god of the weather, the god of rain, the god of the storms, and the god of fertility. His consort, his female counterpart, was the goddess Ashtaroth. Now, this whole area was very dry, very arid, not much rain. So Baal's importance became that he was thought to control the rain. And if you had rain, you had crops, you had ability to grow and to live. Here's the core thinking of Baal worship. Worshippers of Baal believe that the fertility of people, of animals, of crops, 
was dependent on the sexual union of a god and a goddess. Baal worshippers believed that since sex between humans produced new life, babies, therefore the sexual relationship between the gods was necessary to produce life on earth. So humans would engage in sexual relationships while worshiping Baal, and this would prompt the gods to go and do likewise. Then when the gods linked sexually, you would have rain and fertility and new babies, animals and humans and crops, and life would be abundant. So these Canaanite fertility rites, this Baal worship, involved sexual relationships between the worshipers of Baal and the priests or priestesses of Baal at the temple. In essence, these priests and priestesses were prostitutes, both sexual prostitutes and spiritual prostitutes, and these worship ceremonies at these temples of Baal or high places were largely public orgies. So this combination of sexual immorality and spiritual idolatry was epidemic in all the nations around Israel. And as you can imagine, everybody liked to go to worship services at the temples of Baal. This became a serious problem for Israel for 800 years until God sent them into captivity. God had forbidden both spiritual idolatry and sexual immorality in his covenant with Israel. In Exodus 23, he said, first commandment, what? You shall have no other gods before me. Pretty clear. Verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. Now, none of us should have a problem comprehending this, right? This is not a problem of ignorance. It's a problem of obedience. In Leviticus 18, uh, verses 6 to 13, God lists a number of forbidden sexual behaviors that Israel was to not engage in. Incest, adultery, fornication, homosexuality, bestiality, and so forth. And the Canaanite nations in this region habitually practiced these behaviors. This was epidemic in this whole region. And God had told Israel how he felt about that in Leviticus 18.24. Pretty graphic language. He says, do not defile yourselves by any of these things, for by all these the nations which I am casting out before you have become defiled. For the land has become defiled, therefore I have brought its punishment upon it, and the land has vomited out its inhabitants. For whoever does any of these abominations, these persons who do so shall be cut off from their people. God's pretty clear. Defile, it means to corrupt, to degrade, to make filthy. Obviously, an abomination is that which literally God throws up on. It's, it's pretty graphic language about how God feels about these sins. Now, Israel already knew this. Remember, they had already experienced God's judgment for sexual immorality and spiritual idolatry. Where? At the foot of Mount Sinai 40 years before. Remember, Moses went to the top of the mountain to get the Ten Commandments, and he was gone for 40 days and 40 nights. And Scripture tells us that Israel, waiting at the foot of the mountain, grew impatient. And they said, well, we don't know where this Moses guy has been. He's been gone for some period of time now. And they said, Aaron, come build us a God. Build us a God that we can see. We want a God that's tangible, that we can look at and touch and bow down and worship. So 
Aaron should have confronted their sin, brought them back. They'd already had the first commandment. And should Aaron instead crafted a golden idol, a bull calf, and led them to worship it. And this worship, we're told, soon turned into an out-of-control orgy at the foot of the mountain. And God struck Israel with a plague, and 3,000 people died as a result of that experience of sexual immorality and spiritual idolatry. That was 40 years before. And that generation, that first generation, is almost all dead. So we're now talking in year 40, and this is the second generation. These are the children of that first generation, and they're right at the door of the promised land, and they are going to sin in an even worse fashion than their parents did. Verse 2 says that the Israelites got an invitation to this party. And the word there is a Hebrew for feminine, which says the women of Moab and Midian did the inviting. Balaam undoubtedly told Balak to send some beautiful young women to Israel's camp and invite the Israelite men over for a meal. Now I want you to think about this. What have they been eating for 40 years, morning, noon, and night? Manna. Would you be looking forward to a little barbecue? Yes, you would. So they get a friendly visit from their neighbors, a little hospitality. They say, come on over for a barbecue. Now they got a lot to barbecue because the feast always involves sacrificing animals. So there's a big burnt offering to Baal, and there's a lot of leftover meat. So they eat this barbecued meat. Problem was that meat had been sacrificed to idols, dedicated to idols, and they went over there anyway. And while at the feast, Balaam counseled the Moabite and Midianite women to seduce the Israelite men, have sex with them at Baal's temple as an act of worship. That way... Israel would be assimilated into the Canaanite culture. So Israel's not going to conquer Canaan. Israel's going to become like Canaan, right? They're going to be spiritually corrupted, obviously morally corrupted as well. God has a real problem with this. Interesting. In the Bible, God often portrays his relationship with his people as a husband and a wife. That's the model in much of the Old Testament. Both God's relationship with people and the relationship between husband and wife involve an exclusive commitment to unconditional love and loyalty. In the same way, God likens idolatry, worshiping idols, to adultery, committing adultery within the marriage. Both idolatry and adultery involve breaking the vow of exclusive love and loyalty and being unfaithful to one's first love. So God charges Israel two sins in this passage. Number one, he says, the sons of Israel began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab, and secondly, they joined themselves to Baal of Peor. So Israel's first sin was sexually joining themselves to someone with whom they were not married. Now, if you are married, that's adultery. If you're not married, it's fornication, and God forbids sex outside of marriage, completely. Israel's second sin was spiritually joining themselves to a God with whom they were not in a covenant relationship. Now remember, at the foot of Mount Sinai, God says, if you obey my voice, then I'll be your people and you'll be my God, right? We, we will have this exclusive relationship. 
You will be a nation of priests, a holy nation. I will have a special relationship. Israel said, everything you've said will do. They had made a spiritual covenant, a vow of love and exclusivity to God. And now they rejected that. They turned their back on the one true God with whom they had entered into an exclusive love relationship. And they would given themselves over to worshiping this foreign idol god, Baal. So they were committing two immoralities, one sexual and one spiritual. God is always angry over sin. Always. God has been angry over sin ever since Genesis 3. Psalm 711 says, God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. Psalm 5.4, for you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, no evil dwells with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all those who do iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. See, the God of the Bible hates sin because sin is warfare against everything God is, and sin is warfare against everyone God loves. Sin defiles, corrupts, and then destroys everyone and everything under its control. And because God is righteous and holy, he hates what is unrighteous. Because God loves people, he hates things which destroy people. And the number one destroyer of people is sin. It separates us from God and kills us. And because God is a loving God and loves his people and he's holy and righteous, he hates sin in the same way that you would hate a black widow spider on the chest of your three-month-old grandchild. Of course you would. You would hate the cancer that's taking the life of a loved one. Of course you would. So God deals with this public sin. It's very public sin. I mean, this is in front of God and everybody, right? This is not a pretty sight. This is gross. And he deals with it in a very public way. He says, Moses, I wanted you to execute the leaders of the people in broad daylight as a public display of my wrath and judgment. Some translations read, take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord. That's a visible public judgment for their sin. <clears throat> and these leaders were to be killed for failing to stop the apostasy of the people. This is extraordinarily sobering because it clearly says that God will judge a leader who tolerates evil when they have the means to stop it. You have the means to stop evil and you tolerate it, you're accountable to God for not resisting that evil. Leaders are responsible for the sin they tolerate as well as the sin they commit because leaders are held to a higher standard and they're held accountable for the behavior of those who follow them. See, God never tolerates sin. He never tolerates sin. He may withhold judgment, which he's obviously been doing. He may delay judgment, and he's obviously been doing that because he's a merciful God. First Peter tells us God withholds judgment because he wants to give us time to repent, because he loves us. If he brought down the judgment we deserved right now, before Christ, where would we be? We'd be separated from God forever. So the fact that he was patient with our sin, I mean, I deserved judgment from God long before I met Christ. 
long before I met Christ. That was his mercy that he was patient with Brad Hannock until he would call me and to repentance and I experienced the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. So God's delaying of judgment is an act of mercy, but he never tolerates sin. Because he withholds judgment doesn't mean he's soft on sin. It's merciful. All sin will be paid for, period. The person who places their faith in Christ's payment for their sin, their sins are forgiven because Jesus Christ took their penalty, and the person who places their faith in Christ is treated as righteous by God, but the person who rejects Christ's payment for their sin is going to have to pay for it themselves. That's called hell, right? Very serious business. So Moses tells the judges of Israel, I want you to personally kill everyone under your authority, who has joined themselves to Baal through sexual and spiritual immorality. By the way, no one sinned that day in ignorance. Everyone knew that having sex with a temple prostitute was evil and forbidden. Everyone was at the foot of the mountain and had heard, you shall have no other gods before me. So bowing down and worshiping in a gross sexual ceremony, this foreign god, they knew absolutely that this was forbidden by God. So everyone that sinned here sinned with full knowledge. And God said, you're going to pay the penalty for your own sin. Apparently, these judges don't act quickly enough. Verse 9 says, God strikes the people with a deadly plague, and they're dying like flies. You think things are bad now? They're going to get a lot worse. Go to verse 6. Then behold... One of the sons of Israel came and brought to his relatives a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the sons of Israel while there were weeping at the doorway of the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, saw it, he arose from the midst of the congregation, took a spear in his hand, and he went in after the man of Israel into the tent and pierced both of them through the man of Israel and the woman through the belly. So the plague on the sons of Israel was checked. Those who died by the plague were 24,000. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned away my wrath from the sons of Israel and that he was jealous with my jealousy among them so that I did not destroy the sons of Israel my jealousy. Therefore say, behold, I give him my covenant of peace and it shall be for him and his descendants after him a covenant of a perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the sins of Israel. Here's the principle. God commends his people when they see what he sees, when they feel what he feels, and when they act like he acts. God commends his people when they see what he sees, feel what he feels, and act like he acts. You want to know how God felt about it? Well, God sent a plague and destroyed 24,000 people in one day. Now, by the way, no innocent people died this day. No innocent people died. God is a perfectly just judge. If you got infected with the plague and died that day, you were involved in Baal worship. God is not a shotgun judge who just blasts and whoever gets hit, gets hit. If you are judged by God, he is an omniscient, all-knowing, perfectly just God. Everybody who died that day deserved to die that day because God is just. Now, we know that many of the nation were repentant 
because it says there was a huge crowd at the temple, at the door of the tent of meeting, and they were weeping, and they were interceding with God for the sins of the nation. They saw the plague. They saw their family and fellow members dying who had committed this gross sin, and they were interceding with God for the sins of the nation. So they're praying, and they're mourning over the sins of Israel, and this Israelite young man named Zimri walks right up to that crowd, right by Moses, and he's got a Midianite woman on his arm to meet his relatives. Uh, Both this young man and this young woman are children of leaders who definitely know better. Zimri's the son of a clan leader named Salu from the tribe of the Simeonites, so he's he's the son of a major, major leader. And the girl, Cosby, is the daughter of one of the five Midianite kings, so she's royalty, right? Interesting question. The nation is being struck with a plague. The repentant people are at the door of the tent of meeting praying for God's mercy, and Zimri's family is not there. They're leaders. How come they're not at the door of the tent of meeting? Why are they still in the family tent when thousands of their fellow Israelites are dying from the plague? Now, even grosser, the text tells us that Zimri and Cosby engage in sexual immorality in the family tent, and his family does nothing about it. I guess they're okay with their sin. So God had sent a plague on the people for sinning in this sexual Baal worship, and this couple is engaged in the very sin that brought down God's judgment, and their family's okay with it. Kind of tells you spiritually where this family is. This kind of sin, the Bible says, is sinning with a high hand. It's sinning with full knowledge, It's looking God in the eye and saying, I dare you to do something about it. And your children have done that to you, have they not? They looked you right in the eye and you said, if you do this, then I'm going to do this. And they said, bring it on, daddy. Bring it on, mama, right? And now you have a decision. Either you're going to keep your word and do what you said you were going to do, or you will never have credibility again. This is sinning with full knowledge, raised in defiance against with God, knowing exactly what God said and said, we're going to do it anyway. None of Israel's leaders do anything about it, except one man named Phineas. The name Phineas means the dark-skinned one. Phineas is the son, he's the grandson of the former high priest Aaron. Aaron's died. And he's the son of Eliezer, the current high priest. He is righteously furious that God's holiness and honor is being violated by this blatant sin. So he takes the spear, he goes into the tent after them, and kills them in the act of intercourse with one stroke of the spear through both of their bellies. And of course, our culture today would say, this is just murder, plain and simple, completely unjustified. Because our culture today says that consenting adults can have sex wherever, whenever, and however they want, with whoever they want, and it's nobody's business. Well, I've got news for you. Everything is God's business. Because this is His universe. And He writes the rules in His universe. All sin is a declaration of war against God's rule and authority. All sin. God's law in that era for Israel prescribed the death penalty for this kind of behavior. 
You want to know how God felt about this sin? He executed 24,000 Israelites in one day, the same day, for their sin, the same thing that Cosby and Zimri were engaged in. You know, if God had not sent Jesus to bear the penalty for human sin, and he said, the soul that sins will die, and I'm going to execute it today, millions of people would die every day because they're engaged in the exact same sin that Israel was engaged in, correct? This kind of sin is common practice in this culture. And the culture says, well, God doesn't bother him because he didn't do anything about it. That's his mercy that he's withheld judgment. But the day will come when sin will be paid for, either by Jesus' death or by death of the sinner. So Phineas obviously put a rather dramatic end to their sin, the couple's sin, but he also brought an end to the plague. See, God doesn't condemn Phineas, which we're kind of astonished at. He commends him. God says that Phineas's sin, or zeal rather, for God in executing God's holy justice had actually turned away God's wrath from Israel and had stopped the plague. The implication of this, Phineas did not take action. God was ready to take the entire nation out with the plague. Pretty serious. So Phineas has atoned for, if you will, or paid for Israel's sin by executing God's Righteous justice on deliberate sin. Phineas saw what God saw, felt what God felt, and acted like God acted. See, the job of a priest is to represent God to the people. It's to represent how God feels, thinks, and acts to the people. And that's exactly what Phineas did. God was wrathful against sin, and Phineas executed God's wrath against sin and punished the sinners. And God says, since he executed and represented my holy judgment against sin, he treated sin like I treat it. As a result, God said, Phineas, your descendants will enjoy peace and occupy the office of high priest in perpetuity. He was a genuine, true spiritual leader. Now, you obviously say, well, Brad, today we don't live under the Mosaic law, fortunately. Yes, that's a great blessing we don't live under the Mosaic Law. Many of us would be dead if we lived under the Mosaic Law. Romans 13 tells us that after the cross, God has entrusted the judgment of evil not to individuals, but to human government. So human government has the authority under God to execute justice against evil. That's why we have courts and juries and judges and we have a system that says evildoing is supposed to be dealt with by the human government accountable to God, Romans 13. No one today can claim that God told them to bomb abortion clinics, kill abortion doctors, execute violence on someone else in the name of God because they were doing evil. That is not your purview. That is the purview of human government under the authority of God. We do not live under the Mosaic law. Israel was a theocracy where God was their direct king. We don't live under that dispensation. We live post-cross, which means Jesus Christ came to pay for the sins of the world, but it's not automatic. You must receive it and accept it and repent from those sins. Verse 14. Now the name of the slain man of Israel who was slain with the Midianite woman was Zimri. 
the son of Salu, a leader of a father's household among the Simeonites. The name of the Midianite woman who was slain was Cosby, the daughter of Zur, who was head of the people of a father's household in Midian. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, be hostile to the Midianites and strike them, for they have been hostile to you with their tricks, which they have deceived you in the affair of Peor and in the affair of Cosby, the daughter of the leader of Midian, their sister who was slain on the day of the plague because of Peor. Here's the principle. If we do not exercise spiritual discernment, sin will deceive us and then destroy us. If we do not exercise spiritual discernment, sin will deceive us and then destroy us. Now, God told Moses, destroy the Midianites because Satan used them to lead Israel to sin against God. By the way, anybody who advises you to sin is your enemy. They're the enemy of your soul because they're trying to get you separated from God. Anybody who advises you to sin is allied with Satan, not with God. When you read advice columns, when you read social media posts, when your non-Christian friends give you their opinion, virtually none of it agrees with the Bible. They do not have the Holy Spirit. They do not have spiritual discernment. They are giving you worldly advice, and the vast majority of it disagrees with Scripture. The vast majority of it gives you sinful counsel. Be careful who's got you influenced. We're all influenced. Just pay attention who's got you influenced. And by the way, you can hear sinful counsel from conservative people. They can wear suits and ties and give you ungodly, anti-biblical counsel. Judge everything by the Word of God. The world is deceived, and their advice will always lead you away from God, not towards God. Now, the solution for deception is discernment, and discernment comes from God. Israel was deceived by the Moabites because they got an invitation to dinner, and they knew what was going to happen. They did it anyway. They didn't, there's, no, there's, no count, there's no record of Israel ever saying, Lord, what do you think about this dinner invitation? Should I go to this dinner party? Do you know I get invitations occasionally, hard to believe, to go to parties? And you need to know the vast majority of them I'm not going to go to. I'm not saying it's evil, but I don't need to be around drinking. I don't need to be out at 11 o'clock at night with people who are drinking. I'm not saying I don't love them. I'm just saying, for Brad, that's not prudent. Okay? Not thoughtful. Discernment says, Brad, don't go to a place where bad things are liable to happen late at night. Just saying. Besides, I need my beauty sleep, you know. <laughs> Not that it helps, but, you know, take care of what we can get. So they didn't ask God for counsel. They trusted in their wisdom. They fell into gross sin. King Solomon says, Proverbs 4.23, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Our hearts are the core of who we are. It's our core identity. And we know that Satan's not very creative, but he's very, very persistent. Satan uses the same three temptations over and over and over again. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. Same three, nothing new. He's been doing it since Genesis 3. He knows where you and I are weak, by the way, and he keeps knocking on the same door all the time because he knows it works. Israel had just succumbed to all three. They lusted after the Moabite women, they lusted after their food, and they lusted after their self-centered, proud, anti-God lifestyle. All three. Now, if you need discernment, 
You can have it, but you must ask for it, right? James 1.5, if any of you lacks wisdom, that would be all of us, right? Let him ask of Ann Landers. That's not what it says. I'm dating myself. It says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach and will begin to him. God is not stingy with his wisdom. You can have all you ask for. So ask. Hebrews 4.12. The source of wisdom. Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You know what the Word of God is like? It's like the sharpest knife in the drawer in your kitchen times infinity. It's sharp. It divides. It penetrates. It goes into our heart and our mind and our conscience. It convicts us of sin. You want to be discerning and wise? Real simple. Study and obey God's Word every day. And ask God to give you His infinite wisdom. I mean... We don't, I've said this before, we don't have to go to some planet and talk to Yoda, right? You've got the infinite personal God and the power of the Holy Spirit living in you. You could just ask and he will give you, right? The Holy Spirit will protect our hearts from Satan's lies and his lies are everywhere. So that's the incident at Peor. Several weeks later, Moses has completed the second census of the nation in chapters 6, 26, 7, and 8. Verse chapter 31, God's going to wind up this affair, and he says in chapter 31, verse 1, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take full vengeance for the sons of Israel on the Midianites. Afterward, you will be gathered to your people. Moses spoke to the people, saying, Arm men from among you for the war, that they may go against Midian to execute the Lord's vengeance on Midian. A thousand from each tribe of all the tribes of Israel you'll so send to the war. So there were furnished from the thousands of Israel, a thousand from each tribe, 12,000 armed for war. Moses sent them, a thousand from each tribe to the war, and Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, to the war with them, and the holy vessels and the trumpets for the alarm in his hand. That means the Ark of the Covenant went with them. So they made war against Midian, just as the Lord had commanded Moses, and they killed every male. They killed the kings of Midian along with the rest of their slain, Evi and Rechem and Zur and Hur and Reba, the five kings of Midian. They also killed Balaam, the son of Beor, with his sword, with the sword. Verse 14. Moses was angry with the officers of the army, the captains of thousands and the captains of hundreds, who had come from service in the war. And Moses said to them, Have you spared all the women? Behold, verse 16, these caused the sons of Israel through the council of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor, so the plague was among the congregation of the Lord. Here's the principle. God commands us and enables us to wage war and destroy the sin in our own hearts. God commands us and enables us to wage war and destroy the sin in our own hearts. Now, God told Moses, go destroy the Midianites because they led Israel into sin. They were used by Satan to do that. That seems extraordinarily harsh in our culture today because the universal principle in our culture today is tolerate 
everything. Everything. There is nothing that is not to be tolerated. Universal tolerance is misguided thinking, to say the least. I could use some other terms, but we're just going to leave it at that. We should not tolerate what heroin does to a person. We should not tolerate what pornography does to a person. We should not tolerate what self-centeredness does to a person. We should not tolerate what spiritual deception does to people's lives. There are some things for which you should be intolerant. God is completely intolerant of sin. One of Satan's lies is that sin is both private and it's harmless. I sin, it's on me, it doesn't affect anybody else, and by the way, it's harmless because sin is the spice of life. The truth of it is, sin is toxic in any quantity, and it's also contagious and destroys everything it touches. So God commanded Israel to wage war and destroy evil people who had tried to destroy Israel. Today, our war with sin is not with the sin in other people's lives. Our enemy today is not Muslims, Buddhists, Hindus, atheists, secularists, opposing political parties. Our enemy is not anyone who disagrees with us, although many in our culture believe that. Our enemy is our own sin nature inside us that loves to sin and hates to obey. That's our primary enemy. You know, we say, well, Satan is my enemy. Satan is a problem. Don't get me wrong. Ephesians 6 talks about waging war on Satan. But that enemy is external. Our primary problem with sin is in our own hearts. And we need to make war on the sin inside us instead of putting all our focus on somebody else's sin. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 5, You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own Eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. He said, before you run around the neighborhood campaigning for people to spray their weeds in their backyard, clean up your own backyard. Clean up your own backyard. You know, it's easy to complain about the sin in others. You know what's even easier than complaining about the sin in others? Explaining away the sin in their own life, right? I mean, it's easy for us to justify our addictions to food, to sugar, to alcohol, to pornography, to money, to, to wanting more likes on social media. It's easy to justify our self-righteous judgment of people who are not like us, right? And therefore, less than us. What we need to do is unleash violence on the sin in our own heart. That's where we need to wage war. I didn't realize it, but this, this, these two verses are radical. Romans 8, 12. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the flesh, the deeds of the body, you will live. This is not the language of tolerance. This is not the language of live and let live. It's the language of murder. He says, you, by the power of the Spirit, put to death those deeds. Kill them. Strangle them. Don't tolerate the sin in your own heart. By the power of the Spirit, we have the capacity to kill those sinful deeds. See, God absolutely hates it when we make peace with our own sin. He hates it. Because sin that is tolerated is a toxic cancer that does what? Metastasizes. Any sin you tolerate is not static. It 
grows. I used to work in drug and alcohol. An alcoholic is never satisfied with one drink a day. They need two, they need three, they need four, they need five. It's the same with pornography. You, don't, you may start with, quote, innocent stuff. It never stays there. It grows into progressively more degraded, degenerative, evil, wicked stuff. So sin is not static. Sin is a cancer that grows and metastasizes. And if we tolerate one cell of it in our own heart, it will grow. You cannot make peace with it. My biggest enemy is not Satan. Brad Hannock's biggest enemy is Brad Hannock. It's my selfish, prideful, lusting, greedy, selfish, excusing self. See, we need to love what God loves and hate what God hates. If we love God, we'll hate sin. If we love sin, we'll hate God. It's real simple. You can't love both. Right? What's Scripture say? No one can serve two masters. Never sign a peace treaty with God's enemies. Who are you allying with? So when you sign a peace treaty with sin in your own heart, you are now saying, God, I'm not going to let you deal with this. That's an act of war. James makes it extremely clear. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, that's a binary choice, right? Either you're a friend of the world or you're a friend of God, but you can't be a friend of both. The world system follows Satan. You and I don't follow Satan. We follow God. We can't follow both. The truth of it is, every single human being has already pledged allegiance to either God or to Satan. One of the two. It means if you pledge allegiance to God, you're at war with Satan. If you pledge allegiance to Satan, you're at war with God. There is no neutrality. Heaven ain't hell. They're different destinations. And you're either headed to one or you're headed to the other. Right? Is that pretty clear? If we're following God, we have to go to war with the sin in our own heart. Now, the good news is that we have the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. We have the divine energy to put to death the sin in our own life. All of us have addictions. And I don't mean, quote, addictions we can't do anything about. It's an addiction to sin, but God is in the process of making us like Jesus. And His power is working in us every day if we're willing to humble ourselves and obey. God will show us where He wants us to repent, right? That's what the Word of God does. It turns a floodlight on your life and goes, oh man, that's a sin I can no longer tolerate. I know about this sin now. I need to repent from that. And by the power of God, I'm not going to do it anymore. Only by the power of God, because you and I have no capacity in our own strength. See, we all have the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. It's a question of, do we read it? Do we understand it? Do we obey it? As we obey what God says, sin is put to death. And you know what happens then? The love of God reigns in our hearts. This has been a very heavy lesson, and I appreciate your staying with me through this. Roger, this morning, if you weren't there, you absolutely need to go 11 o'clock, was talking about the nature of God. God is holy, but God is also a loving Father, and He loves us so much, He's not going to tolerate that which will destroy us. This is an example of this. It's also... Uh, a, a warning to say, don't tolerate sin because of the outcome. Okay, let's review before Marty comes up with prayer and praises. 
Number one, sin violates God's holiness. And I think we live in a culture that is so comfortable with sin, we forget that. We forget that holy God is angry over sin every day. But because he loves us, he withholds sin and gives us, he withholds judgment and gives us time to repent. So sin violates God's holiness, and every sin will be paid for, either by the death of the sinner or by the death of God's Son. This is why the amazing grace of Jesus Christ is staggering, because the holiness of God is so perfect, and the sinfulness of humanity is so evil. The grace of God is astonishing through Jesus Christ, who took the penalty for our sin on the cross if we exercise faith in him. Number two, God commends his people when they see what he sees, when they feel what he feels, and they act like he acts. And I know you say, well, I can't behave like Phineas. Yes, that's true, you cannot. But there's a whole lot of things that God wants you to see what he feels and feel what he feels and acts like he acts. And he came to take away the sins of the world. And our job is to do what? Bring that good news to the lost because Jesus loves them and laid down his life for them. Number three, if we do not exercise spiritual discernment, sin will deceive us and then destroy us. The key to spiritual discernment is to look at the culture through the eyes of Scripture. Don't look at the eyes, don't look at Scripture through the eyes of the culture. Let God inform your decisions. Let God inform your information set. And lastly, God commands us and enables us to wage war and destroy the sin in our own hearts. And I will tell you that as I age, this warfare is intensifying. It is not getting easier. When I was younger, I thought, well, when I'm 80 years old, I'll never lust again. Well, I'm not 80 years old, but I'm persuaded I'll still be dealing with that when I'm 80. That's life. This warfare goes on until you see Jesus face to face. But you have Almighty God living in you through the Holy Spirit, who gives us the capacity to destroy that sin in our life and to wage war effectively. All we have to do is be obedient to that. Thank you all so much for listening. Keep reading ahead. We have a couple of more um, weeks in the book of Numbers. Love you very much. Now that you know, do. You've been listening to Manna at Valley Baptist Church. To hear this lesson and more, subscribe to our podcast, Manna at Valley Baptist Church, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. Manna is taught by Brad Hannock and meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California. We believe in doing life together, and we encourage you to join us on Sunday morning. For more information, visit manapodcast.com. Thank you for studying with us. And now that you know, do.